You are listening to Exciters. What is Hollywood anyway? It's just a bunch of people from other places. Stories about dreams, audacity, choices, dedication, and unconditional passion for the performing arts. I'm Ingrid, your host, and this is Exciters. Hi there, it's lovely to be back on air. Thank you for joining us. Actsiders is overseas right now, but I really wanted to share our latest guest story. Today on the show, I talk with Ali Nasser, an actor, singer, and voice actor from Cairo, the capital of Egypt. Ali is a definite jack of all trades. He used to be the voice of Mickey Mouse back in Egypt. You'll hear him do a little performance in Arabic and in English. And he also used to play in the Arabic adaptation of ER. We also talked in this conversation about the aftermath of the Arab Spring, uh, the catch-22 that he is often confronted with when applying for Middle Eastern roles. But I'll say no more. I'll let you meet Ali. How are you, Ali? I'm good. How are you, Ingrid? I'm good. good I'm good. good. How, what, what have you been doing these days? Uh, like, not much. Uh, it's like the usual hustle and bustle of New York, trying to survive. I mean, between my regular job of being a copywriter at an ad agency on a freelance basis, but also like being able to go for auditions from time to time. It's been it's been pretty crazy. And especially like now that I'm like, I'm supposed to be getting married in a, in a couple of weeks. So that wow. also is sort of like ramping up a little bit of the tension. So wow. Yeah. How long have you been engaged? Uh, For two years now. And you met here? Yeah, met her here in New York. Wow. Yep. Is she American? She is American, yes. Okay. And so you're meeting the parents for the very first time? No, we, we've no. met we've met before, but it's actually like my parents are meeting her parents for the first time. So yeah, it, it is a little oh, nerve-wracking. Yeah, anxious about that. Uh, I'm like, I, like, I've been around her parents long enough and like, and they're like, they've been very lovely people. So I imagine like once they get to meet my parents, like they'll pretty much be best buds at this point so when are they flying uh so they fly to new york on the tw yeah uh, on the 29th 30th if i'm not okay. mistaken yeah they fly from egypt on the 29th arrive here on the 30th so the wedding is uh, set for september labor yeah labor day weekend yes. <laughs> in 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 new york or uh, in buffalo buffalo yeah okay. that's where she was born and raised wow congratulations yeah. thank you yeah So you did some uh, television mm -hmm. uh, gigs in, uh, in Egypt. Egypt? Yes. Can you tell me more about that? Usually in Egypt, you don't go through the normal, I suppose, audition where you where you see a call, mm. you submit yourself and then through a talent agent and then you, you get an appointment and then you go audition. No, like this was actually um, a friend of mine, uh, also like uh, who's also like a theater student, He recommended me to a friend of his for a role on an upcoming TV soap opera in Egypt. It, that was supposed to be the first of its kind. Yeah, like this was uh, an adaptation of ER. <laughs> yeah, like we like yes. a lot of soap operas in Egypt, they usually tend to happen around like social, like societal stories, things that happen like usually whether it's in the upper crust or the upper echelons of society or in the very... Dallas, but staged uh, yeah. in Egypt. Uh, yeah, I think of sort of plot lines involving warring families and all that. 
so this one was kind of like a bit of a change in scenery. Like they wanted to do something different. So uh, I was recommended for this role of a medical student, an intern at this hospital. <laughs> in Cairo? In was, Cairo, oh, yeah. Wow. I auditioned in front of like one of the most renowned directors in Egypt. Uh, his name was Shreve Arafa. He has a very wide history of different genres that he tackles every once in a while. So this was sort of like a new challenge for him. I remember like my audition involved doing a lot of comedic stuff because my role eventually would end up being kind of the comic relief of the hospital. Sort of the young, naive medical intern who get into like situations, <laughs> awkward situations that he wouldn't Can want. we watch this? It is, is it online? Yeah, it is online. Okay, you are giving me I, the link, please. Yes, it, it is there. <laughs> I would gladly share it with anyone. <laughs> there was this one sequence where I had to give birth to two women in the same ward. Like it was, the hospital was overcrowded and my scene involved my character. He had never been in that kind of situation where he had to assist in birthing, in the birthing process. So it was him by himself, surrounded by two women in the maternity ward, about to give birth. And he was absolutely clueless. He had no idea what to do. So he's moving back and forth between these two women and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do next? How did you handle the first days on the set? How, uh, it, how did that go? It was very interesting. Like, it was a bit of a learning process. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I was always, even before I, I came upon acting, I was very fascinated by filmmaking mm -hmm. in general. And to to be in that environment, to like to be very up close to that whole situation of being on set seeing what everybody on set does from the boom operator to the camera operator to like the rigging, the uh, the slate shots and all that. So, so it was kind of like very interesting, but also very intimidating. Like I'm as a, yeah, like especially like if it's your first time on set. But I've learned a lot being on that show up until the day that they decided to kill off my character. <laughs> yeah. What happened to you? It was it was really weird because like out of the blue, like they just told like uh, I remember the producer walking up to me telling me, "All right, so <laughs> it's happening. Today. You're gonna die today." <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, it's like you have a big death scene coming up. It's going to be glorious. You're gonna be all covered in blood. It was like, "What is happening?" When I got the script, it was, um, my scene was pretty weirdly written and it kind of didn't make sense because what ended up happening was that there was this, um, this drug addict, this junkie who walked into the hospital, was looking for a fix, but then one of the main doctors kicked him out of the hospital and then he was coming back for revenge and he came in with a knife and he was about to like strike that doctor, but I sort of came into the way and, oh. and the, I was shivved. So you died a hero. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> yeah, I did die a hero, but then the weird part about it about it all, and this is something that one of my friends brought to my attention long after the show was over. It's like, wait, you got stabbed in a hospital and nobody bothered to to take you into an emergency room. They just left you to die on the floor. Okay, this is hilarious. Yeah, it's like in, in the footage that's available. So it's like, it's kind of like... And a weird but awesome cap to like that show reel of like or that collection of scenes from that show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How many times did you have to take to do this scene? It didn't take a lot, but I remember because they they had me they had this huge setup of blood, mm. like a, a lot of spurts kinda of like uh or squibs actually um attached to me, but then when it came time to shoot the scene, none of them were actually working, so like they decided, you know what? Just just paint his chest. Just just put some like blood, splatter some blood on his chest, and that we'll just shoot it like that. <laughs> okay, but I'm I'm sure it's a very popular 
uh, oh, yeah, TV no, show. No, right? it is. Well, no, like it actually lasted for three seasons. But then like uh, I think I was the bi- the biggest casualty of season one. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> Didn't last for long, but you know, it still was a like a pretty good learning experience. I let a, and it was a very popular show in the sense that a lot of the biggest superstars in Egypt were working on it. They weren't main roles, but they were actually um, guests. They were yeah, they would appear as guests. Uh-huh. Did you get to meet some? I had some really nice experiences meeting with some of these big star, some of these big stars. It was it was really weird at first because these were actors that some of them I grew up watching as a uh, as a kid. But then like it got to a point where like you know what no. This is normal. This is a regular part of my day. I'm no longer starstruck. You know, this is ju- this is how <laughs> yeah, my life is now. That's your job. Yeah. So you told me something about uh, watching TV mm-hmm. during Ramadan. Yes. Right. Can you uh, explain that? So Ramadan is it's, it's sort of like the Super Bowl of the Middle East. It, it's it's yes, people are fasting, but then it's it's such a communal experience, especially when you come to break the fast. It's usually done. <clears throat> you break the fast at like a friend's house or a family member's house. So it's it's usually like huge guests. It's a it's a whole feast. People eating, sharing food, and all that. And then like once everybody's done eating, you know, they gather around the TV and they start watching TV shows. Hmm. TV watching is a huge. I suppose like it's a very huge communal experience in Egypt, especially during Ramadan, and that's where the biggest shows and the biggest ads are being produced. So that's where where that sort of like equivalence uh, to Super okay. Bowl comes from. It's like all the big budgets are spent during that that part but instead of lasting for one day it's actually a whole season it's like 30 days and do you know how many uh tv shows are produced in egypt i would say no less than like 40 tv shows wow yeah no less and and it's it it becomes like really crazy during that time because a lot of like there are a lot of people like asking okay so like i can watch all these shows like you have to recommend to me what are the best shows i should be watching uh, during ramadan like what are the best soap operas that like are worth my time Everybody has a different recommendation, so it's it's very hard to keep well, up. What do you recommend? <laughs> I don't. I, I just, I'm out of this. I just prefer to take my time with some of these shows. So mm-hmm. most of these shows end up on YouTube anyway. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, I'm just going to wait until everybody's done watching it. I'm just going to take my time, watch it sometime during the downtime. Mm-hmm. I don't have to bother with following up with the same schedules uh, like as the, <laughs> as the Ramadan TV time slots dictate. Yeah. You're a voice actor, right? Yes. Can you tell me more about this because it's 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 pretty pretty funny. Even before I actually came across that voice acting gig, even as a child, I used to watch a lot of TV and especially cartoons. Mm. So I was a very impre- I was a highly impressionable child, and I would normally act out everything that I saw on TV. And when, especially when it came to cartoon characters, I made it sort of like my life mission that when I was five years old to sort of know how every character, every cartoon character speaks. I would normally take that with me and sort of like a party favor. Um, so when I, when we were in family gatherings, I would normally imitate these characters, but I would even take it up an extra level by having to imitate family members as well. Mm. So it, it was a thing that I kind of, I kept with me a long time. I was sort of dubbed the class clown when I was at, at school. And it was also a very nice thing to have, especially when in literature classes, teachers would normally pick me to be the, the one who would actually like read the the texts and also create these characters so it's like when we were reading oliver twist the teacher would normally have me read as fagin because i usually had that very old man very like very sophisticated oliver go go grab pocket or two 
like that sort of thing. So I, I felt very rewarded having these skills, even as a child and, and also growing up. And like a lot of and that earned me like a sense of, uh, I suppose, popularity, because like a lot of kids would even, like a lot of like my classmates at school would even like sort of like, hey, do it. Hey, do this character for us. Or like, hey, can you do that scene for us? And it's like, that's pretty much how I won a lot of friendships. I was a very nerdy kid as in my younger days. So I normally kept to myself and like I was frequently bullied on so it's I I felt that having that skill having that talent helped me get through so little did I know five years from then these talents would be called upon by Disney when I was at university uh, I remember they had sort of like a call sheet where they were asking for uh, actors to do like if you if, like if you can imitate the voices of either Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck please call this number and we'd like you to come in on audition for us Donald obviously is not one of my strongest like imitations, but Mickey Mouse, I knew how to do well. So I came in uh, for an audition, called him up, came into the studio, recorded some lines. You would normally do this for the Disney Channel in the Middle East. Uh-huh. Um, they would normally dub these shows in Arabic. But before like they would actually select these actors, you'd have to give these voice samples over to Buena, Buena Vista International. Oh, yeah. okay. So like they were sort of like the gatekeepers in a sense. They would normally look through all the voices that they look through these voices and see, okay, like who's the best fit? Mm-hmm. Who who actually brings that character best to life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I get a call a few weeks later telling me, hey, why don't you come in and uh, record a few lines for, this, uh, for the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? Yes. I was the voice of Mickey Mouse <laughs> in Arabic. <laughs> For the Disney Channel. I really want to hear it. Okay. In Arabic or in English? (laughs) In Arabic. Okay. Hey! Ludo! So yeah, like... uh, So it's like, Hey, Pluto! Down boy! I can't stay mad at you. (laughs) So yeah, the so that like there was the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and then like the repertoire of voices started growing. I started doing voices for other Disney characters like Stitch, uh Piglet, Miss Piggy from the Muppets. What? Yeah. How does she sound? <laughs> Pretty much like American M- like- Miss Piggy. I was like it was like Kermie, Kermie, Matpolikia Kermie, we fought the Lani from Muselsenda. Oh yeah, she's, she's oh yeah, no, like borderline. Like, oh she, yeah, no, like she's a little schizo, right? Yeah, no, like she, she goes from like one she to she another. goes from zero to a hundred right. real fast. So it's like being able to like juggle sort of like the soft side of Miss Piggy, but also being able to manage that angry temper when like somebody when something doesn't go her way. That's so cool. Yeah. How many characters did you do? There were also some minor parts that I did in other like Disney movies in Arabic, but like I would say the ones that I would consistently come back to back to were I would say eight and eight or nine. You have to have like such a wide range. There were some voice acting legends that I really looked up to. I was very familiar with people like Mel Blanc. He was the man with a hundred voices. He did voices for guy for characters like Bugs Bunny. Like he did mm. from Bugs Bunny wow. to Pepe Le Pew, all, like all wow. the way until like Yosemite Sam. He he was a legend in the industry. Like, and there are also other people who are very strong voice actors today that I really admire. People like Jim Cummings. Like, he's the go-to person for Disney these days. So I really bow down to a lot of voice actors who have such an amazing range. So, have you been auditioning a lot uh, these days? How has the uh, audition jungle treated you so far? 
as an actor from a Middle Eastern background, someone from Egypt, the opportunities that are available for us are, I suppose, very few and far between. Because, I mean, if you if you want to look for roles for that are specifically catered to, for Middle Eastern mm. characters, very, like, very few categories to choose from. Either you're a bodega owner, you're a taxi driver, you're a terrorist, you're a UN diplomat, you're an interpreter, or a Syrian refugee. Mm. It's a very narrow diaspora of things that like uh, roles that you can actually explore as an actor of that background now for me it's it's even weirder as well because when i go and audition for these roles people think that no like you don't strike us as the type you're handsome to be a bodega owner what yeah or you're like you, you don't strike you don't strike us as a cab driver it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? You're asking for a Middle Eastern actor. If I want to audition as a Middle Eastern actor, and these are the auditions, that, like these are the roles that are available for me, and I'm being turned down for these roles simply because I don't look the type. But then when I audition for the other roles that say any ethnicity, preference usually goes for actors who are I Caucasian. Caucasian. So it's a thing where you can't win, which is, which is kind of amazing too, because like I always look back at Omar Sharif. For a lot of actors from like our part of the world, he's very revered. He was able to transcend ethnicity completely. But back then, like it was a very different time. But he he could believably play a Russian doctor, a Mongol. He could he play in Doctor Zhivago, right? Yeah. Uh, or he could play a Mongol, like he was a, he was Genghis Khan. He was also like a New York playboy. He was also an Eastern European spy. So he transcended all of these sort of boundaries in terms of ethnicity. But then I feel that. The industry has changed so much since then that like there's really no room for Arab actors to kind of like be as prominent as he was. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I suppose part of it is sort of like the lack of opportunities, the lack of good roles that are available for people from that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Even if these roles are available, like they go to Jake Gyllenhaal. What do you think of uh, Riz Ahmed? Riz Ahmed, I feel, is one of those actors who is slowly starting to occupy that space. Mm-hmm. I feel that he's really paving the way for a more stories to be told from that part of the world but then i mean he's usually like the go-to guy they were recently doing the casting call for uh, aladdin the live action version of aladdin and i remember there was a lot of controversy surrounding that because of the fact that people were fan casting all these roles they were worried that well we're never going to get any sort of like authentic casting with that role because there are no arab actors There are no actors from that region who have that star power who can actually be able to draw the audience that they need Mm. for this sort of movie. Like, I mean, with recent remakes, you have big stars like Emma Watson or Ian McKellen or Ewan McGregor in Beauty and the Beast. uh, Or you have Lily James in Cinderella, all these recent remakes. You have big stars in these roles. Mm. And then there was this whole concern with Aladdin that, well, this would go the same way as this, uh, as Prince of Persia, where you'd actually cast a white actor or like a Caucasian actor right. for all that is, is meant to go for a Middle Eastern, only because like they're bigger stars or like they have bigger star power than like a, a, than any other actor like from that region. It's very disheartening also to see that you make the roles that define you in a sense that it's not the actor that makes these roles; it's the mm-hmm. roles that make these actors. For instance, Indiana Jones. It's kind of like a name that has become like a very popular household name but a lot of people would argue that like it's harrison ford that actually made that role his own but then when you have 
people discussing, oh, like, let's remake the role and let's cast a younger actor for that role. Is it really the actor that makes the, that defines the role or is it the role that actually defines who the actor could be? Yeah, I think it's a good balance of the two, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, I feel that the the opportunity for actors like from that part of the world to become more prominent. I mean, thankfully, thank God, they actually casted uh, an actual like Egyptian Canadian to play the role of Aladdin. What's his name? Uh, Mina Masoud. I'm hoping that this would hopefully pave the way for more inclusion in terms of and more people putting money where their mouth is when they talk about diversity and inclusion. Mm. Yeah. I was wondering how is um, the profession of acting regarded in in Egypt? There was a time when like it was pretty much one of the foremost film industries in the world. It was certainly one of the old ones. Some people would even say like, it dates back to the 1920s. That's when the first actually like, fully produced Egyptian film was made. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like one of the first in the Middle East and in the regions. It was kind of considered as the Hollywood of the Middle East mm. back then. And acting back then was such a revered profession. It was a totally different time back then because like Egypt was a little bit more, I suppose, liberal. They kind of like aspired to be sort of more more of a progressive. Yeah, very progressive, more of a European country back then. But then once the revolution of 1952 happened, Egypt started kind of like losing a little bit of that prominence. Like a lot of industries became nationalized and the Egyptian film industry became one of them. Uh, but much to its detriment, there was a point in time when we were producing like upwards of 100 films in a year. Wow. I would say in the 80s and 90s, we were pretty much producing four or five films, a year, Egyptian films a year. Hmm. And with that, of course, like the the luster of being an actor in Egypt fell through. With the rise of, I suppose, secularism in Egypt, there are some factions of society that became a lot more religious and with that, of course, came the notion that acting was looked upon as sort of like an indecent profession. Mm. People would still come and watch, like go and watch movies or they would watch TV shows. Mm-hmm. But it was more sort of the notion of what was happening behind the scenes, what was, ha- what was happening off camera. Mm. That was sort of... Uh, like it triggered the imagination. And yeah, like people, people would often think, would associate the acting profession with being sort of like a very immoral profession. Those people like... Uh, they drew drugs, they fornicate, they... And I think some of these notions still live on today, but I think they're less and less more. But again, when you tell people, when when somebody says that they want to be an actor, a lot of people kind of look... Like, is, is that what you experienced? Uh, I experienced like a little bit, a little bit of that. There was a there was a little bit of pushback from my family back when when I told them that I had an interest in acting. It's like they kept warning me about it. They told me like that, honey, this is not your crowd. These are not your people. Who knows what they do like when they're not acting? What if they make you do drugs? What if they? But then uh, I think part of the saving grace is that once once I had the ER show, the soap opera was released. There was a like there was a lot a lot less pushback. There was I suppose a little bit more encouragement from my family. They were more championing the idea like once they saw sort of like how well like how I well spoke, you were doing how well how well I was doing at that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I suppose like it it varies from from one person to another. Like yeah. I mean there's so the I suppose like the more religious families would kind of look down upon the industry whereas like the more liberal ones they feel oh no like this is this is totally a, a legit career path. Sadly, a lot of people do not see the benefits of art, how it sort of like elevates the culture. Yeah, yeah. So, uh you told me earlier that in an effort to bring more theater in Cairo, you created a company over there, right? Uh, some of us, me and some of my theater uh, graduate, like graduate friends from theater, 
we did this like independent theater troupe called Alumni Community Theater. And what we did was that we took some plays that like we would usually have meetings. We would discuss like plays that we read that we like would be interesting to stage in, in Egypt. And we'd have to do the normal things that I suppose non-profit independent theater groups would do sort of like try and fundraise, uh, find a suitable theater venue and then like find like finance for props and the stage and all that. So we had a pretty good uh, run, I, I would say, like for four years. We had like a staple Christmas show where we'd sort of like uh, do something for the kids. And these were usually like our big ticket sellers. And then we use that money to like stage the more sophisticated plays um, what kind of plays? One of the plays that we did was Gasping by Ben Elton. Mm-hmm. I suppose it plays that tackle uh, more modern themes that would resonate with the Egyptian audience. We we still were aiming for that kind of like broad appeal, but we didn't want to sort of alienate the audience in terms of finding scripts or materials that like they wouldn't gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we would have sort of one play, like one act play festivals. We would have a collection of Harold P- Pinter play, like one act plays. That's cool. Yeah, so we had we also did uh, a few improv shows, and that was sort of my beginning in improv. We had a very good um, like stand up. And- no, uh, like no? legit improv, where we'd actually like you'd stand on a, you and an improv tr- troupe would ask for audience suggestions. They would actually throw yes. like they would actually throw a word at you, and then you would like just roll with it, just take wow. it wherever wherever we would go with it. I know that um, in recent years, Egypt has gone through major upheavals. I'm referring to the Arab Spring specifically. And I was wondering in uh, which ways this revolution had affected you and your generation, the young generation back there. Uh, one of the like main benefits I feel that we've benefited from having that revolution is that a lot of people have become more politically aware. Mm-hmm. Like me, I, I didn't care much for Egyptian politics before the Egyptian revolution. And Do you think social media played a part in that? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like, and especially Twitter, like in, in the sense that it was kind of like it helped mobilize the masses in a way where if we had uh, like they were asking for doctors to come to the square to help with any injuries or any uh, blood donations and all that, any requests for supplies at the square at the time, like these were all done via social media. Wow. And I remember it because like in the first days of the revolution, communications were cut off. People would have to resort to uh, VPNs and all that just to be able to get a connection through and be able to communicate to the outside world what was happening in Tahrir Square at the time. Yeah. I remember like I, I wasn't able to go in the very first days only because like it was really dangerous. You didn't really know exactly what was going on the media of course was being very one-sided in, in terms of trying to denounce the efforts that were being done in Tahrir Square they were sort of like claiming that they were just a mob in a, in a sense yeah. so it was more deluding people than actually like informing them so in social media helped clear up some of these mis- misconceptions so like once pe- like people were more aware of what was happening mm. that w- that was when like the movement started I suppose, growing growing even more until, like, uh, Mubarak was sort of overthrown. Yeah, yeah. But then, even that, like, the only legitimate, like, I suppose the the strongest opposition that came through after Mubarak was overthrown was the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. And so they were were able to mobilize and be able to sort of take a prominent position in in the public uh, consciousness in terms of, like, being able to uh, go into like parliament elections, being able to 
uh, run uh, have candidates ready for to run for the presidency and all that. So there was also that sensation of like, what happens next? There, like, there was a lot of inexperience going on in terms of like taking from history and being able to in- incorporate that into the future because you normally have a handbook in terms of what happens during a revolution, but nobody gives you a handbook about what happens after a revolution. And and these uh, there was a lot of like confusion and a lot of like manipulation happening after that. Sort of like the God the Muslim Brotherhood elected into power. They were turning the state into more of like authoritarian state, have it, have it be more of like a supposed religious state in, in a sense. And then that's when the military came like swooping in and yeah. and forcing a coup d'etat mm. in a sense. Uh, that, so now it's the military in power. Right? Yeah, now it's the military in power. A lot of Egyptians, I suppose, have felt very disempowered after that because in, in a sense, as a country, you're trapped in a rock and a hard place. You either go, lean to the like right. hard right where you have like the Muslim Brotherhood or the far left, which is the military. It's kind of a situation where you're forced to choose the lesser of two evils. Two evils. Hmm. Did, did the situation play a big role in uh, your decision uh, to, to come here? Or was um, it something that was not Well, it, it, like, I wouldn't say a huge decision, but it was partly because of it. Because, like, again, it was after the revolution, the country was in a little bit of a standstill. It was kind of this point in time where in a lot of industries were not working there weren't there wasn't really a lot of like production happening and all that so i felt well you know i might as well use that time to sort of like go to the united states get a master's degree hopefully that would benefit me when i decide to come back but then when i did my master's degree i figured well i might as well do it in in an industry that sort of rewards creativity in a sense that also is in some ways tied to acting or filmmaking Mm -hmm. in a sense so i decided to go into copywriting i had experience working at an ad agency a couple of years prior to me coming to the united states and then I applied for a master's degree at Miami Ad School, which was a pretty interesting experience in a sense, because you're learning how to be a copywriter in a sense that you write uh, slogans, taglines, jingles. It nurtures sort of like the creative side of you in a, in a way that maybe a lot of copywriters have turned into becoming sort of screenwriters, talk show writers, late night show writers. So it's 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 kind of like a very fruitful industry. It breeds a lot of potential for multiple industries other than advertising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a part of you that, yes, you're selling your soul to the devil in a sense, <laughs> where you kind of like have to do a little bit of, uh, you have to sort of like sell a little bit of your integrity just to sell a product. But then you get a lot out of it in terms of like being able to think up of ideas of what's a new creative original way that hasn't been used to, that I can that I can use to my advantage. Is there? I was going to ask you. I forgot uh, to ask you. Is there any playwright, Egyptian playwright, that you really like, or authors that you would recommend us uh, to read? For instance, uh, book authors like Nagim Mahfouz or Ale El Aswani. Both authors they wrote very descriptive books about like the social the social different social classes in Egypt mm. but then the Egypt that is described in Nagib Mahfouz's books there are very few elements of it that exist today mm. it it informs the Egypt of today mm-hmm. but is not necessarily the same Egypt that you would read about in his books whereas Ale Loswani as a as an author he's a more contemporary author he's had like very popular books published and translated the most popular one I would recommend a lot of people to read is the Yakubian Building. So the Yakubian Building is basically a story about different social classes that live in this one building in downtown Cairo, and it chronicles very different like points in in their lives, and it tackles like very heavy themes uh, about social justice, about police state 
it tackles like a lot of issues, sort of like homosexuality, inequality between classes, and how the more the strong prey on the weak, in a sense. Thank you so much, Ali. I'll be adding the link uh, in the description below. That's wonderful. Uh, but unfortunately, we are approaching the end of the show. Thank you so much. No problem. I, I I loved every second of it. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay, you yes. let me know. Uh, thank you guys for listening. This is Actsiders. This is your host Ingrid. Bye bye. My guest today was Ali Nasser. I want to send out my congratulations again to the newlyweds. I wish you the very best. Learn more about Ali through the links posted below. If you've enjoyed the show, please write a few words on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We'll be back in three weeks from now as we're taking a little break. But until then, take care and remember to always have fun should you be on stage or off.